just as 2.25 says, both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. That's where we were uh, a few weeks ago when we just talked about marriage, marriage as it was, talking about Genesis 2. And then because of that, uh, we leave our, our mom and our dad and we bond with, cleave to our spouse and commit to. But Genesis 2 says that they, the first man and the first woman, when God put them together, when he created uh, uh, them and then gave them together in this gift of marriage and married them, it was, a, it was a moment of no shame, no brokenness. Sin hadn't entered into the world, so there's no brokenness in their identity, no brokenness in, in any sexuality, no brokenness in any sin in this world. There's nothing. They're naked and felt no shame. Now, where we're going, I just want to tell you, this isn't sufficient. One sermon on this topic isn't sufficient. It isn't. Two, which is what we're going to do, also isn't sufficient. <laughs> but hopefully it primes the prompt because I, I'll tell you, my hope is a bit, if you are married in this room or heading towards uh, uh, marriage, that this would prepare you, help you, equip you to talk about intimacy. This is one of my euphemisms this morning for our kids. Intimacy. If you don't want to have a good, intimate life, then don't talk about it. Then don't talk about it. That's how you can kill it. That's a way to shoot it in the foot. Intimacy is powerful. Like we said two weeks, three weeks ago, marriage is one mortal life fully shared. And so it talked about this one flesh union of uh, a, a naked yet no shame and together and enjoying all the pleasure and joy and unity here that, that intimacy is the most intense physical intimacy and deepest spiritual unity possible between a husband and wife. But because it's not Genesis 2.25, but we're after Genesis 2.25, particularly Genesis 3 and the fall we have distorted what was a gift. Most of us are not experiencing Genesis 2.25 because sex in this world under, after the fall means sex is broken, means also we have been broken by sex. And we'll talk about that next week when we talk about sin and, and sexual assault. But when you look at this this morning, how broken it is is that Typically, most of us, I'll tell you, most of you, I'll just label you. Most of you in this room have two kind of inclinations, relationships with intimacy. Just keep using that word, uh, with intimacy. And th this is it. This is your relationship. Some of you see intimacy, you see sex as God. That much of our brokenness sexually comes from making a God out of intimacy or or making a God out of this relationship. Peter Kraft, he puts it like this. It's like a religion, not only because it is objectively holy in itself, but also because it gives us subjectively a foretaste of heaven, of the self-forgetting, self-transcending, self-giving. That is what our deepest hearts are designed for, long for, and will not be satisfied until they have because we are made in God's own image. 
And this self-giving constitutes the inner life of the Trinity. What he's saying is that sex is powerful. Sex is a powerful picture of what godly looks like and and so easily sin distorts it and it can cease from being just powerful to becoming a god where we see it as this powerful beautiful gift but then we turn it from a gift instead of receiving the gift and worshiping the giver of the gift we receive the gift and worship the gift and make it a god every time someone clicks on a broken website they're looking for god now gals when we think about this, sometimes it may not be the act of intimacy. Maybe it's a relationship, gals, that you've made a God. Maybe it's a boyfriend. Maybe it's affection. And you'll use the act of intimacy as worship. But still, it's your God. You're bowing down to a false idol. Like it, either the act itself or the person has become your God. You present your body as a willing, living sacrifice to some boy that is your spiritual act of worship. And the promise that you've probably heard or been told or assumed is that you will feel accepted and loved and protected, but 23-year-old boys make for bad gods. And inevitably, it will leave you not accepted but rejected and not Love but unloved, not protected but unsafe. And then, guys, we make it our God so often. We log onto the computer, or we sleep with our girlfriend, or we pick up the girl at the bottom. We're presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to this idol. We are bowing down in actual act. It's not symbolic, this is not uh, ethereal, this is not out there, abstract. This is us in action, bowing down in the act of intimacy to sex as a god. It's worship. That's how some of us think about and have grown up with and currently really operate and function with, is that that's how we view intimacy. Others of us grew up, feel about it, think about it now as just gross. Uh, maybe because you've been in a relationship or, or uh, uh, maybe because of a, a moment or assault or an attack or, or maybe because some teaching, but you just see and view intimacy as gross. It's dirty, it's defiling, it's problematic, it makes you feel uh, cringy, awkward, just so many that can make you think, okay, that, that's what it is. Some of it just must be some of the teaching or some of the thinking or some of the assumptions that you grew up and the, those things were like, uh, sex is gross, so save it for the one you love. And you're like, okay, it's gross, but I'm going to give it to the person I love. Awesome. This is going to be great. I'm going I'm I'm to keep and hold and protect this gross little gift until I find that person and then forever I'm going to give it to them. Yes. <laughs> like someone just grew up with that, right? That it's gross. 
Like we, we told ourselves, hey, it's so icky and gross so that we wouldn't sin before marriage. That was our uh, attempt to try to uh, deal with those sinful desires. Try to pay with like, oh, if you just will repeat yourself, it's icky, gross, then you won't ever mess with it. So you won't ever sin in that way. Good. Well, what happens when you actually get married? Do you think the, the switch in your mind just magically flips? Like you're going to beat into your mind for a decade, it's gross, it's gross, it's gross, and you get married on the 20th, and you think uh, the 21st, you're like, it's so good, I love it, it's great. What a gift. No, you're going to be like, I've got baggage. <laughs> and I'm bringing it all to you. That's the gift I'm giving you in marriage is all this baggage that I have. We'll talk about this next week. But bad teaching on sex has caused all sorts of problems. The point, though, with God, and if we go back to creation, which is helpful, is where we started three weeks ago, is this. The body is not bad. The body is not somehow less spiritual than the spirit or soul. Like I said, Romans 12 says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your spiritual act of worship. So we worship with our bodies. And then I'm going to jump ahead, and I'll make for the case for a good one, but, but go to chapter 5, verse 1, the end of verse 1. Do you see that? Do you see narrator? Maybe in your ESV, the translation says young women, but either way, we're dealing with trying to make sense of who this narrator is. And the narrator says here in verse 1, eat, friends, drink, be intoxicated with caresses. Here's the point. Directly or indirectly, this is from God. I would lean on the side that says, the narrator here is God. And God is seeing and blessing this married couple and all their joy and intimacy, all their pursuit and intimacy, all their pleasure and intimacy. He's saying, eat, friends, drink, and be intoxicated with love. I've given you this gift, so enjoy it together. Sex is not bad. It's a gift. It's a gift from God. It's a gift. So with that set up, let's, let's see. Will you walk with me? Let's walk with, through this text. Because some of us, you know, may now have relationship with the church, but we know things like 1 Corinthians 13. That's the, the love chapter, right? Or like Romans 8. People have talked about, like, I think that's the greatest chapter in the Bible, right? Well, this is the intimacy chapter. So this is where we're going, okay? The chapter. And you're like, I can't believe uh, there's a chapter like that in the Bible. Yes, there is. I'm going to say it seven times this morning. Here's number one. The Bible is not prude. The Bible is not. The Bible is wonderfully joyful and celebratory on the gift of sex in marriage. It's like, yes, let's go. And God is saying, eat, drink, be intoxicated with your spouse's love forever. All right. Chapter four, verse one. This is the husband speaking. This is on the uh, most likely their honeymoon, the eve of their wedding day. This is most likely their first 
interaction together as husband and wife, okay? Chapter 4, verse 1. How beautiful you are, my darling. How very beautiful. Behind your veil, your eyes are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats streaming down Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep coming up from washing, each one bearing twins. And none has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet cord, and your mouth is lovely. Behind your veil, your brow is like a slice of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, constructed in layers. A thousand shields are hung on it, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, that feed among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, meaning all night long, I will make my way to the mountain of myrrh. And the hill of frankincense. You're absolutely beautiful, my darling. There is no imperfection in you. He blesses his wife with his words. That is a whole paragraph of them standing face to face. He, him beholding his wife, uh, her being available to him, and him just blessing her with his words. This is you. This is you. This is you. I mean, he starts with essentially behold, like, wow, look. Mira in Espanol, right? Like, look, behold, check this out. Wow. Eyes, there's an innocence, a beauty to her eyes, a mystery as they lay behind a veil. Her hair uh, has black hair. It's down. That's why it's flowing down like the goats on the mount. So she's letting her hair down for him in this act she's got teeth <laughs> and all of them it's, the, it's great they, I mean you know what I mean they each have their twin meaning she's got all of them it's great she's not missing a few <laughs> neck that, that's the imagery of dignity and power Okay, if you think about this relationship between the two of them, if they're both what I imagine standing like Genesis 2.25. You with me? Okay. No shame. Together, naked. And he's beholding his wife. And she is not cowering in fear. She's not timid in this act. Why? It must mean that she feels safe and protected in his presence safe and loved and prepared, cared for and, and loved and adored in this moment that she is open, uh, made herself available to him and just standing in front of him with her hair down, fully available to her husband. And he's just saying, wow, wow, wow. This, this poetry, though, is like taking a, a stock, an inventory. And that's what he's doing with his eyes. Now, you can see this on, on the sinful side, right? The lust of the eyes. This is the opposite. This is the love of the eyes because this is your spouse. This is your cistern. This is your well. This is where you're to drink from. And so to take inventory of your spouse and to behold and to look and uh, consider and talk about it and celebrate and bless your wife with your words because of her, her attitude, her character, and her beauty is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. So bless her with your words. She's not timid. She stands tall and graceful. 
This, this neck, like the Tower of David, I mean, she stands tall and graceful, uh, uh, making herself, well, I just mean this. Why would she be timid or fearful in the presence of this man who adores and loves her so much? You see what's happening here? I know there is so much brokenness when we come into this conversation. But I, I want you to get captivated by being captivated with your spouse. We'll see that in a few verses. But with his inventory, he's saying, I like this. I like this. I like this. And this, is gonna, this inventory is actually going to happen two more times before the end of the book. And before the end of the book, she'll actually do it, and we'll get even more red-faced and embarrassed. She, she's like, I like this, and I like this. And we're all like, uh, I need to switch to a different book. What's this yearly reading plan? What is this? <laughs> but to be honest, uh, for the people of the Old Testament, they wouldn't allow uh, Jewish boys to read this until a certain age. Why? Because it's that explicit and graphic. And if you're reading this, you're like, that sounds interesting. Is that an innuendo? Yes. Every time. <laughs> yes. Every time. You're like, choices, fruits, what's that? It's not fruit, Okay. That's what it's not, just to be clear, okay? This is awesome. And when he does this, when, when, the, when whoever stops and takes the inventory, they just pause at the thing that they are enamored with, delighting in. That's why he stops in verse 5, right? Throughout this book, the, the word used there is used 38 times, and teeth are used 30 times. Two very important things, I guess. But if you're surprised by this being in the Bible, then you should be surprised also by Proverbs 5, and this is what it says. Let your fountain be blessed, and take pleasure in the wife of your youth, a loving deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts always satisfy, be lost in her love forever. The Bible is not proved. This celebration of the woman, her sexuality, is no different than God in Genesis 1 creating all things and saying, this is good. This is good. This is good. This is good. That's what husband and wife are doing here, taking inventory and saying, this is good. I like this. That's very good. It's just like when God brought Adam and Eve together and Adam sang over his wife. He rejoiced over her. So husbands, bless your wife with your words. She is your standard of beauty. Nothing else is. Her age, her beauty, her weight, her looks, her now, not in the past, not in the future, her now is your standard of beauty. That you wow, wow, wow like Luke Wilson at her and no one else. Or Owen, sorry. Wow. That, her. Why? Because she's yours and you are hers. So you bless your wife with your words. Tell your girl like something like, like this tonight. If Psalm 139 is true, and it is that she has been formed, knitted, put together, wonderfully, crafted and created by God, and then gifted to you, praise her. There's so much to praise. There's so much to rejoice in. 
There's so much to bless her with. Take inventory. Take stock. Stop spending all your time critiquing the little nitpicky things about your wife and rejoice over all that she is to you and for you and say it aloud to her, to her. I don't need you to tell me how great your wife is. That's cool. Does she know? Does she know? Has she heard it from you? Is the only time she get a compliment when you're in the presence of someone else and you say something to them about her. And that's it? That's the only time you bless her with your words in the presence when someone else is asking about something? It can't be so. You've got to take inventory and say, hey, you're beautifully, wonderfully made. And it may be awkward, right, to actually do this. But you can appraise, honor, bless your wife with your words from her beauty to her character, to her growth, to her uh, working by God's grace to keep pursuing Jesus for how she's helped you. Like there's so much to bless your wife for. Again, if you want to kill your intimacy, don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. Throughout this whole chapter is just a lot of communication. Now, when I've sat down, me and Kaylin have sat down with premarital couples for, for years, one of the things we talk about this is this, is about communicating in regards to intimacy, particularly uh, uh, someone uh, niftily taking sex and expectations and putting them together, and we had that conversation every time with a premarital couple, sex expectations. Let's have the conversation, and you got to keep having that conversation. You know what's really helpful? To start talking about, you know what's not helpful? Not talk about it after the fact. <laughs> you have to keep communicating. Like I talk about frequency and quantity and quality. This is a massive part of your discipleship, your life following Jesus is your intimacy. Just like your finances and stewardship and your family, all these, this is a massive deal. So it is, Honestly, bizarre that we don't talk about it more. Bizarre. Bizarre that we don't ask about it more. Bizarre that we don't open up more. Bizarre that, that leaders in the church can be people. Let me stop there. It's bizarre. Here, here's some markers to see if something's going wrong. If you never give to the church and you never have intimacy with your spouse, there's probably some things wrong, right? Like when you get brass tacks on some of the real things, the things that own our heart, sex and money own our heart. So you want to see where you're at really with like functionally following Jesus. Check those things out. So have these conversations once, twice, forever. Keep talking. But husbands, if you have not heard yet, bless your wife with your words. Next section, 8 through 11, look at that. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the peak Amana, from the summit of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of the lions, from the mountains of the leopards. You have captured my heart, my sister, my bride. Now, just to be clear about that sister language is just this friendship that we're in this together. We're actually like 
committed to one another. We know one another. And this, this isn't romance without friendship. This is we're lovers and friends. Captured my heart, my sister, my bride. You've captured my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How, delight, how delightful your caresses are, my sister, my bride. Your caresses are much better than wine, and the fragrance of your perfume, perfume than any balsam. Your lips drip sweetness like the honeycomb, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. So now, after blessing her with his words, he invites her to be intimate with him. Now look at that word captivated, verse 9, circle that. I'm going to circle back around to that. But that word love in verse 10 is that doting love. It's, it's the Hebrew word dod, but it's just like doting, care, passionate, uh, erotic love. You have to use your imagination, but that's what's happening here. This love for her. The caresses, that's what he's speaking of. So this is not prude at all. God is not a prude. Sex was God's idea. But notice that right here, we're not talking about technique. Primarily, a, a, a good, healthy, intimate life has absolutely nothing to do with gymnastic ability or skill of the couple or reading every magazine and all, what, a hundred tips every week. A hundred tips now, a hundred tips now, a hundred tips now, right? It's a lot of tips. It's a lot of tips. But I'll just, let me be very clear. Intimacy isn't about performance. It's about pleasure and enjoyment with one another before God. Meaning, it isn't about seven tips for you to be the best performer or have the best performance or, 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 or be to the one that knows all uh, exactly uh, everything to do and have all the truth. No, what makes it good for them is their love, not all the tricks. What makes their intimacy and their marriage amazing is their care, their doting desire, their passion for one another. It's the safety they have with one another, their tenderness with one another. Their communication, that's what makes sex good, not all uh, performance. Uh, you, ne you need to stop adopting the world's value system of performance and start thinking more uh, like Christ, and that would be mutual sacrifice. Not perform, do well and know everything, and present yourself as varsity, can we just be honest? We all, with every skill, everything that is new to us, we need to learn, and we need to grow, and we need to talk about it, and we keep communication open, and keep talking about it, keep figuring things out. But what makes this so beautiful <laughs> is their doting love for one another, or verse 9, captivated my heart. In, in the original language, that's just one word in the Hebrew. It's like he's saying, oh, my heart. He's in awe. Like, she's stolen his heart. She's, he's ravished by her. He's crazy about her. He's in awe of her. This isn't just a body hymn. This is just selfish pleasure. This, is, is, this isn't some just image, two-dimensional on a screen. 
This is his bride, his friend. You see the tenderness and the, the, the personal, familial love, but erotic care. It's just this beautiful relationship here, this dynamic. So much different than how we objectify one another. So different. Or men are objectifying women and women are objectifying men. And we live like that and then we get into marriage and we keep doing that. But this is something different. Our sin makes <laughs> relationships about us. But being captivated with your spouse actually has more about you than about them. It's more about you than about them. Meaning, uh, we don't actually know what this woman looked like. But we know what, he, what she looked like to him. Isn't that interesting to consider? I'm not trying to do something from silence. I'm just saying, like, we don't know, but we know what he thought of her, what he, how he described her, how he enjoyed her. Being captivated uh, with your spouse is more about you than about them. Meaning, you don't, uh, just like this whole series, my hope is for us to take, for us to grow. My hope is not to give weapons into spouses' hands to then use them against one another. Do you hear me? The, the, from everything that we've said for four weeks, I, I, I've not been at all trying to give you something to then use to beat your spouse into a new way of life or a different way of thinking, just to weaponize it and, and, and wield it. That's not, when I'm talking about husbands, wives, I'm not giving you ammunition. I'm talking to you husbands. And when I talk to you married couple, I'm talking to you that are married. Like We've got to address these things. We've got to work in these things. Being captivated with your spouse is more about you. And so you, what are you doting on? What are you thinking about? What are you considering? What's your inventory? How do you consider your wife? Just back to last week, this disrespectful thoughts and attitudes and words, like that stuff needs to die and we need to respect and honor and enjoy and, and take an honest inventory of our spouse and say, wow, thank you, Lord. And if your heart's not there, you need to stay there until it gets there. Or husbands, you're a one-woman man. You're captivated by that woman, your wife. When our energy and desires and attention is focused only on our spouse, we'll, cap we'll be captivated by each other. Like love and eros and all this intimacy that we're talking about is supposed to be a laser beam uh, focused on your spouse, not a shot going, shotgun going everywhere. There's precision here. You'll see this precision in verses 12 through 16. Just this my, 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 this availability. Look at it with me. My sister, my bride, you're a locked garden, a locked garden and a sealed spring. Your branches are a paradise of pomegranates with choicest fruits. 
henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with the best spices, you are a garden spring, a well of flowing water streaming from Lebanon. You should just make sure mentally in the back burner you note all the fruits and spices. All right. But here, he says my, 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 my. Right? So much my here. Why? From back and forth, from spouse. And in, in, uh, from wife and husband back to each other. It's like, my, blow up on my guard. Uh, this is mine. Like, they're just this one mortal life fully shared. This one flesh union. We're in this together. We're committed. We're one life. One flesh. It's unity. That's what sex is. It's oneness. It's passion. It's mutual possession. You become a part of me, and I become a part of you. I give my whole self to you, and you give your whole self to me, and we become one, one physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. You give me pleasure and joy. I give you pleasure and joy. This is godly sex, guys. And to put it in the words of uh, uh, my friend, it's, it's red hot and awesome, okay? He doesn't have that accent, but I gave it to him. I don't know why. But we need this. We need to recapture the sex narrative. We have been members, or I guess maybe captors, to 60-year revolution on sex. That's happened in our country. That, uh, 60? We can go back to 70? Let's say 60, but 60 years of a sexual revolution, and it is chaos now. The world is insane around the topic of sex, and we need not to dismiss it, call it gross, and run away. We need to recapture the sex narrative. The world can't touch this. This was God's idea. This is beautiful. This is amazing. This is something to celebrate and to rejoice in. What I love here. With, with husband and spouse is that there's communication, blessing in words, but then there's also this communication of availability. That I'm available to you. Uh, and the other saying, I'm available to you. And communicating that. Uh, I remember 10 years ago talking to a couple that just said uh, in their marriage, and I'm not saying this is your thing. I'm just saying it was interesting to me that, what, that, that one of their kind of just things in marriage was we would never say no to each other. And that they would just, they would work through it. Why? Did they just always want to be open and available to the other one? Always thoughtful. Ready to serve. Now, I know in saying that out loud, I hear myself thinking, someone can take advantage of this. Right? That's what I hear. That's what I feel. Someone can take advantage of this. That's true. It's true. There's a lot of sin, and we're going to get into it next week when we talk about intimacy. But just because there's been uh, terrible things done doesn't mean we need to throw it out, call it gross, or worship it as a God. We see it as a gift received from God and enjoy from God. And see, sex as an act of worship to him, not to sex itself. And then lastly, you see all this communication, communicating the blessing, 
the words of affirmation, the joy, the praising, the rejoicing in, the communication of availability, but you also see the communication of satisfaction. Verse 16, awaken north wind, come south wind, blow on my garden, spread the fragrance of its spices. Let my love come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. So that's wife speaking, husband responds. I have come to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gather my myrrh with my spices. I eat my honeycomb with my milk. I drink my wine with my milk. And so if you go back and look through what he said to this point, you'll see where the honey and wine is. It's with her mouth. And so he's saying, I've, I've made out with you and I've kissed you. And you can just keep going and all that it means here. But, but he's just saying, we've enjoyed this. I'm satisfied in your love. You, you are my treasure and and I'm yours, and we get to enjoy this pleasure together, gifted to us from God. And then you have God celebrating it. Eat, friends, be intoxicated with caresses. What's wild is that verses 16 and 5-1 are literally at the center of this book, meaning sex is at the center of this book. And if you know this book, you'll know it's not only at the center of it, it's the theme, Right? but 111 lines before verse 16 and 111 lines of poetry after verse 1. This is the center. This is literally the crescendo, which I think, again, which why? I think this is God narrating this. This is God saying, singing of his approval to their love. It's not bad. It's also not a God. But it is a gift. It is a gift, a gift to be received. Now, last thing I'll say is this. For those of you that just feel broken by sin and knowing that you have uh, broken by sex and also just maybe broken in your relationship and feeling hopeless of, of moving forward and growing, there, there's something beautiful and empowering here in verse 7. And verse 7 says this of the husband speaking to the wife and we're going to make this connection that we've seen over the past four weeks three weeks you are absolutely beautiful my darling there is no imperfection in you there is no flaw in you and if you know the book this means at the beginning the woman talked about her flaws and he's saying no 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 there's no flaws in you right she talks about her skin color she, ta she talks about things at the beginning like these are my flaws and he's saying no there's no Laws with you from your hair to your toes. I've looked at everything. I've taken stock. Seven body parts. Most likely because seven is the, the, the number of perfection. Is God speaking? Husbands. This is easy to say when your wife is the only object of your attention and affection. There's no flaw in you. But when you are caught up with lust, caught up with thinking, caught up with uh, perusing, caught up with seeking after someone that's not your spouse, it's very easy then to see the, uh, the beauty over here and then start seeing the flaws in your spouse. But when your affection, your attention is laser beamed on your spouse, it's very easy to say, there's no flaw in you. I, I'm enamored. I'm intoxicated. 
this relationship with you. I'm just over, uh, over the hills, over my head, over my head over heels in love. You know, that, that phrase goes over my head. <laughs> um, head over heels in love. That that's what we're communicating. It's easy to say that. But the crazy thing is that this is what Jesus says about you. Do you remember the cosmic romance we've been talking about? That everything that, that Song of Songs is speaking of, Paul will say that this marriage and all this intimacy here is pointing to the greater reality is that Jesus the groom so ferociously loves his bride that he came off his throne, away from his father, sent by his father, and won and wooed and pursued you with his life, death, and resurrection to say now forever, there's no flaw in you. I mean, to declare you righteous, justified, there's no imperfection in you. That he, uh, uh, you stand before God and he takes full inventory of who you are, where you're at, and he says, because of my son, Jesus, no flaw. So this is what excites us to continue in marriage is that our groom loves us and gave himself for us and, and, and put everything on the line to win us, to redeem us, and to make us his bride so that he can dote on us forever. So there is hope. There is hope in your brokenness. There is hope in your marriage. There is hope in your sex life because King Jesus reigns and he loves you. And because he loves you, he's going to get to the point where one day he's going to say, I'm making all things new and all the sexual brokenness in your life and the whole world will be swallowed up and be done for. And we'll only know the joy and pleasure of being with our husband forevermore. Since that is the story we're part of, then we get to receive and embrace the gift of sex and marriage and throw ourselves into it. To not only, as Paul says, and, and, and people love to quote it, right? Because it's the New Testament verse. But it's so lopsided. It's so weird to just quote it to say, let the marriage bed be undefiled. You're like, yay, that's what really gets me out of bed in the morning. That's what <laughs> rocks my socks off is that. Let it be undefiled. You're like, okay, just don't make any mistakes there. Right? That's what I start thinking. You know what Song of Songs is saying, though? This is, this is how you don't get into lopsidedness, is to think the whole teaching of the whole counsel of God on a topic. And you know what Song of Songs says? This is a joy. Marriage bed is supposed to be joyful, hilarious, fun, wonderful, exciting. That's what it is. So let the marriage bed be undefiled. Yes. And joyful. Let it be a party. Let it be a celebration. Okay? Receive it as a gift from God. It's not gross, and it's not a God. It's received as a gift from God. Father, we, we thank you for this sweet gift.
Lord, I, I pray with our thinking, how we think about this topic, to the baggage, to our past, to our sins. Lord, I, I pray that you would make things new, that you would transform now what's broken. Relationships and marriages, past sin, current sin. bitterness, that sense of, of being defiled by, by sin that we've done or that's been done against us. Lord, I, I, I pray that it would be your grace that transform us. And your grace is seen clearly in verse 7. When we think to Romans 5, Romans 8, in Ephesians 1, that we were declared righteous, we were justified, declared no flaw in us because of Christ's perfect life in our place and because of his bloody death in our place and because he victoriously rose from the grave. There's hope and joy here even in the midst of the worst brokenness. Lord, you fill us with hope, and Lord, would you fill us with this vision of good, godly, wonderful, joyful marriage beds. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.